Hi, everybody. Welcome back to uh, Dorothy's Place. It's Elias Krim with my buddy, Pete Davis. Hello. And we are talking to a guy we know a little bit and have been looking forward to connecting with, Andres Bernal. And I'm going to let Andres introduce himself. He's a guy of many parts. And I know he's teaching at the moment at uh, CUNY in New York, but there's more to tell. So Andres, introduce yourself uh, to those people who have not heard of you already. Great. Well, first of all, uh, thanks to the two of you for having me on, on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. So my name is Andres Bernal, and I, uh, my story begins arriving in the United States as an immigrant. Uh, where I always thought that I got here when I was four years old, but I found out over the holidays that I was actually three. So <laughs> on the wrong story <laughs> for, the last, for the last few years. Um, uh, so yeah, so I, I arrived here in the U.S. as an immigrant. Um, you know, my, my parents were kind of involved in politics in different ways back in Colombia, which is where I'm from. My dad was very much in student activist groups and, and kind of the Colombian left at the Universidad Nacional in Bogota. And my mom's uh, story with politics is, is kind of different, but also very uh, relevant and important. And I started kind of seeing the value in this as I got a little older because, you know, she was uh, uh, one of the, the women in her family who was discouraged from kind of developing her career and going to, going to school, going to college by a lot of forces. And she nonetheless just did it herself because she thought that was very, very important. So those were kind of the foundational value systems that I was raised with. And, um, you know, in uh, my undergrad journey, I studied philosophy and I was very interested in social theory, political philosophy, uh, existentialism, these kinds of concepts that I, I was really interested in trying to integrate both questions of, of the, the meaning of, of our lives and, and what it is to be a human and how to make sense of our, our journeys throughout life and then also political questions of why the world is the way that it is so that eventually led me to become very interested in worker cooperatives i i thought that that you know for me at that time was a pathway towards some transformational changes that we that are badly needed you know i i grew up in in the 90s and uh in high school i uh, was a freshman in high school when 9-11 happened and, and the war on terror followed that. Um, and growing up in Texas at the time, you know, it was, it was very interesting to see just my entire surroundings just, you know, almost on instinct back George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq and, and uh, society become very, became very, very reactionary at the time. And I kind of felt a, a bit isolated at that moment with all of that. Um, so I grew up through that. I grew up through the financial crisis in 2008 and uh, many of these ideas that I had been interested in and heard about, educated on, seemed to become very, very present and relevant in my life directly and, and, and everything around me. Um, so I, I thought that economic democracy, worker cooperatives, solidarity economy, this was a, a way to maybe go beyond social democracy uh, and, and uh, foster a new pathway towards something that was, that was different and that was... Uh, emancipatory and it could lead us to a, a, a new kind of liberation. So I, I, I went to the Mondragon Cooperative huh. wow. as part of my master's program in organizational leadership. They had a class of their, we spent like a week and a half. And, um, and that was pretty formative and really, really cool to see the way that um, all of the, the worker owners there had just a different vision of, of what life and work life could be like. And it was really, really cool. So that led to me then to start a PhD program here in New York City, which where I've been here since 2014 at the New School in public policy. And uh, I was interested in studying an initiative that, that had been happening here in New York City to expand worker cooperatives through the city council. The city council had been support, has been supporting since 2014 uh, an initiative to fund and finance uh, basically developing organizations that would go out into the community and, and help uh, organize and bring worker cooperatives to life. So I was doing that for a while, uh, kind of getting myself grounded in uh, New York City life. Um, and, you know, then the, the pres 2016 presidential election happened. 
And on one hand, it was a very, very inspirational time because I felt like a lot of that energy that had come out of Occupy, um, Occupy Wall Street was in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it caught a lot of people off guard. And I, I had heard about Bernie Sanders years before, but I never thought he could become kind of a mainstream person in our, in, in our political culture. So that was really, really exciting. I mean, I, I had held many, many of similar views to him uh, for many years, but kind of in the spaces that I was in, I, I was seen as like very fringe or kind of radical and crazy and, and you know, talking about socialism and all this stuff and democratic socialism. But here we were, 2016, and, and, and this, these ideas were right in front of us. So that was really cool. But then at the same time, we have this other uh, fascist nut job who's also rising in popularity. And so it became increasingly clear that um, the, the kind of liberal, neoliberal system that, that, that has been in power for so long just couldn't hold it together anymore. It, 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 it's been in crisis, it is in crisis, and it started falling apart. And that started opening up all these spaces for new things to form and uh, tragically on the Republican side we saw Trump mobilize a kind of reactionary populism that really destroyed the, the Republican establishment and uh, and then we didn't see that in the same way on the center left where the establishment was able to hold uh, Sanders back um, so you know that was a very important turning point in my life and uh, I guess I'll say that at that point, uh, a good friend of mine who I had met maybe 10 years before in doing leadership development programs for, for um, Latino youth, she uh, decided to go to Standing Rock to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, as all of this is happening with Trump's ascendancy and all of this is going on. And he gets elected and she, she goes out there. Uh, and when she comes back, she decides to run for Congress for the, for the next midterms that were coming up. And, um, you know, it was a long shot campaign, um, but uh, I decided to, to get involved and to help her out. I was, uh, you know, getting my PhD in policy. So I was bringing the things that I uh, thought I could contribute to her campaign. And I witnessed in New York 14, you know, of course, her, she, her, my friend is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I, and I witnessed during that year and a half the way that the community just came together in, in like a, a, a microcosm of a social movement around this person who was not afraid to make big, bold claims and who kind of brought the same charisma and energy that we had seen in other people like maybe, you know, like Barack Obama, but with the substance of uh, something that was truly different that we hadn't seen before in, in, uh, in American politics, at least in my generation. And so uh, in the community in, in the New York 14 uh, district, there were just all kinds of people from community leaders of all generations, people who are aspiring stand-up comedians, people who are aspiring actors, uh, just educators, uh, all different kinds of people were, were just galvanized to be a part of this, of this uh, campaign. And it kind of represented a lot of the work that, that her and I, in many ways, have been trained to, to do in thinking about how to mobilize communities around certain kinds of values when we were younger. Um, so she ends up winning, and, uh, and it was just a, a truly beautiful, incredible, powerful thing. And during that process, especially at the end, I, my intellectual development and research had kind of been evolving to the point where I started to really concern myself with macro questions. Because as, as, much, as, I was, as much as I'm very supportive and see solidarity economy, economic democracy, worker cooperatives as a very, very important part to building a new kind of society, I always felt like the macro questions were lacking or they weren't there. And as, as long as we gave that up to hegemonic forces, they would always have an upper hand on us. And so, so that's we're kind of looking for dual power. Right? Yes, right, right. Um, so that was around the time that I started to be introduced to and reading up on um, this, this paradigm and framework called modern monetary theory from a left and progressive perspective. And it, it all kind of, this, it seemed like the stars all aligned at that very crucial juncture 
And uh, some conversations were being had around what other kinds of policy, disruptive, subversive policies uh, AOC's campaign could introduce. So we were talking about uh, universal basic income at one point, and I, and I kind of in, in, interjected and said, you know, I think that something like a jobs guarantee would be much more um, important and much more transformational than a UBI. And, and I think it comes from a place of, uh, of a much more systemic analysis of the kinds of non-reformist or transformational reforms that we need to put into place. So I, I brought up the job guarantee, I remember at one meeting, and then I, I invited Alexandria to a conference called the New New Deal, which was being held at the New School and Columbia University. And so some of these people that I had just been meeting were all going to be there. The, uh, members from the Modern Money Network, who were at, the, at that point beginning to, I was becoming, to, becoming friends with them for the first time, and scholars like Derek Hamilton, Stephanie Kelton, Randall Ray, Sandy Darity, uh, Pavlina Chervneva, uh, all of these people were all kind of there, and, and I was meeting them for the first time. So that kind of began this uh, conversation around, well, one, the jobs guarantee, which ended up getting placed on her platform. She put it on her platform, and it became very, very popular right away. Kind of, It was one of the, those moments that launched her into a new level. She experienced several of these, where ultimately she is the kind of political figure that she is now, but it was kind of like a stepping stone process to that. One of those stepping stones was the jobs guarantee, putting the jobs guarantee on our platform. And so since then, it's been a conversation around, uh, you know, uh, facilitating and, 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 and building the conversations of what would a progressive political agenda look like if informed through a modern money perspective and paradigm and what is the role of the jobs guarantee in that? And what are the kind of policy objectives that we would want um, to achieve certain kind of political goals? And so right after she wins, she, of course, puts forward the Green New Deal. And that's where I decide to do some shifts in my own research and start to begin my focus more on the Green New Deal itself um, from the perspective of how uh, trying to study the way that it has been evolving within a, a, a national agenda and getting on that agenda and uh, unfolding as a policy um, goal and a policy call to action where there are different alternatives as to what that Green New Deal can look like and there is a debate there as well. And so some of my background in philosophy and in particular in critical theory, discourse analysis, narrative analysis has come into play here because I see myself as starting to study uh, how exactly people are conceptualizing and speaking about this Green New Deal thing. What are the points of, of conflict and the tensions? And, and how is the public imagination being reflected in, in our kind of mass media and in our political discourse? So that's kind of what I'm doing uh, on that research front. But then also I've, I've started playing this role, traveling around, uh, initially, the United States, speaking to other people who are running for office, uh, other political groups, uh, speaking to various sunrise hubs, and just trying to raise awareness and consciousness in general about the importance of a Green New Deal and, and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And, and then more recently, I ventured out into Latin America, started speaking to uh, different political leaders, even elected officials in Colombia and other parts of Latin America about what would it mean for there to be a Green New Deal agenda that goes beyond just the United States, but across the continent of the Americas in and of itself. So cool, cool. a bit of a long introduction there, but that's the story. <laughs> that, that was great. That was a great self-introduction. You know, th this being Solidarity Hall, I'm going to take one second and jump back and ask you, you know, who are, who are the names, who are the great social theorists and so on that influenced your thinking maybe earlier, but also today? Just a few names, just quickly, give us an idea of who really is uh, kind of in your pantheon. Oh, yeah. So I guess in my, in my formative days, um, very early on, I was actually introduced to, Mar to Karl Marx's work. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember being like 12 years old and my, my, my father talking to me about uh, uh, historical material materialism and, and uh, class struggle. And I was like, that's interesting, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and then kind of 
getting to college and finally having access to real substantive conversations around what Marx was trying to say as a social thinker and as a philosopher. Um, but I would say in addition to Marx, you know, uh, uh, at least politically, very influenced by some social theorists like Michel Foucault, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, Gramsci, uh, I would say also very interested in, in certain psychoanalytic thoughts, you know, everything from Freud to Nietzsche to uh, Marcuse and the Frankfurt School to, um, um, I, I, think, I think that kind of covers the, the basics there. Are, are you also teaching some urbanism? I just wondered, I hadn't thought of this before, but I noticed it at CUNY. It looks like your courses on the city and so on. Are you yeah. getting into like municipalism, you know, that kind of thing? Well, so, so I, I, I teach in an urban studies program yeah. and um, kind of like the, the background of my research in, in worker cooperatives and solidarity economy led me to think about how these initiatives could, could influence um, work within cities. Um, but also some of the classes that I teach allow me to talk about critical theory from the perspective of space and place and how things like gender, race, sexuality are, are part of these uh, social constructions that are, you know, over, over different historical processes and urban processes being uh, produced and reproduced. And, uh, and I, I mean, I like to talk about all these things and, and try to ground them in ways that students can really relate to how it's actually shaping their lives in the here and now. Got it. Got it. Let's see. Um, oh, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about, um, you're, you're finding this network of younger Latino activists. You meet AOC. I guess two questions. One of them is, uh, was that a pretty empowering discovery? I mean, it's like you realize suddenly you're not uh, sort of a lonely voice somewhere, but there's a group of people that uh, now you're part of. And secondly, you know, would you be up for sharing with us just some little interesting uh, insight or moment about AOC something that you think should be cool with you sharing that uh, maybe the world doesn't know about? Uh, um, yeah, so that part of kind of my, my story happens around, I was 17 years old or so, and I signed myself up to this leadership development um, kind of summer program. And it was run by the National Hispanic Institute. So I went, I remember the, the, the founder actually went to my high school and started speaking about philosophy. And that was like one of the only times I'd ever heard anybody bring up philosophy in high school. And I was like, oh shit, this is interesting. All right, I'm, I'm down. So um, I went to this program and, and it was basically a week long youth legislative session where we all, a bunch of us 17 and 16 year olds were given basically the agency to run for different offices and then uh, basically govern in whether we were in a, set, a mock Senate or president or in their in the president's cabinet or or supreme court justices or whatnot and we had to give speeches and we had to be elected and all these things so i get i i i was elected to a supreme as a supreme court justice and i gave a speech to like 200 people and i had never done that before <laughs> and i you know remember that when my name was announced uh that i that i had been elected it was just one of like the the, the most liberating and empowering moments of, of my life and of course the whole the whole purpose of this program is to give people who typically in the United States are a marginalized culture the sense that they actually have political power at a very, very young age and, and, and that cool. kind of uh, cool. cultural agency. So, yeah, that was that was very uh, transformative. Um, think something about AOC. Uh, we were at a bar one time and we had a debate about the Lion King. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's that's about the level I was going for. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I I, I was I was uh, going on on this speak about how the Lion King is produces uh, racist and white supremacist discourses. Well, it it the the protagonists in the Lion King are a monarchy. Yeah, I mean it's a monarchy. it's an anti democratic movie. <laughs> the whole thing with the hyenas and the elephant graveyard, and it's just like I mean you're you're talking about impoverished minorities in in in, a, in, a, in an urban ghetto somewhere so what's going off about that they have a they have a moment there's a scene in there i remember watching it recently there's a scene in there where they were like uh 
wait, why, why is he king? Why can't we be king? Right. And I was like, oh, isn't that what all radical dreamers ask? Why are they king? Why can't we all be king? Yeah. Um, but on a more um, uh, back on track note, um, I'd, love to hear, uh, I'd love to hear a bit on why do you think this all happened now? Because it's, you know, I get the sequence of events like, you know, Obama is elected. There's a lot of hope. Then there's a lot of disappointment. And then there takes a little bit of time to get going again. And then Bernie kind of opens the door. But why do you think this all happened in the late 2010s that finally these ideas like modern monetary theory and worker cooperatives and Medicare for all and the Green New Deal you know, kicked off now, you know, uh, Al Gore makes uh, uh, Inconvenient Truth in, I think, 2004. And, um, and it doesn't take, it takes 14 years until uh, there's kind of a very serious attempt to, to uh, you know, have a movement around it. What, 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 what's your take on why this all happened as you've watched it over the last 10 years? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I think that the transformations that first came with with uh, Reagan and, and the original archi- architects of, of neoliberalism, uh, they, they, they had a pretty strong hold on the culture for a while. And, and you see this in, in just the total absolute power of new, new Democrats like Clinton and, and them in the Democratic Party, uh, where what we imagined was possible was very constrained. And then you have the, the whole end of history thing of, uh, with Francis Fukuyama writing that essentially history is over and this, is the, this liberal democracy is the best we can do. And the 90s is just this time of, uh, of imagining our, ourselves all being part of, of Wall Street. And, and, and I think that's represented in a lot of uh, cinema and, and, and media at that time. And then you go and of the 2000s and it starts to get really wacky and weird with reality tv and all of that and i just think like my generation started to come of age at some point and we just we went through all of that and you know i think on one hand we just saw the way our material conditions were uh not improving or even getting worse we didn't have the stability that our that our parents generation had and then on the other hand, like the internet and, and all of this, these changes in, in media uh, allow us to see the world in a bit of a different way, which, which is not always positive, right? Like uh, what, what reality television produced, I think, is a really dark reflection of, of, of who we can be as a culture. And then ultimately that's our, that becomes our, our president, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think like there had been like these moments of struggle Obama, many of us were, were either starting college or, or pretty young when Obama was elected for the first time. And we've, I, think, I think a lot of the country felt that like that was it. Like that, you know, the first black president, Barack Obama, was going to usher in this new era. And when that didn't really, you know, and it's after a, a huge financial crisis that's global in scale. Uh, and then... That recovery was very stagnated and slow and nothing really came of it. And then eventually Occupy happens. Um, so I think it's like these waves and, and, and the learning that happens through these waves as also people are maturing, getting a little older. And I also see there's something about those involved in politics today where we're being forced to think in a more integral way. And what I mean by that is you know, the, the, the legacy of the feminist movement, the, the queer rights movement, uh, we're, we're having to think about things more intersectionally so that, you know, big absolutes as just like, this is going to be the revolution. It, it, it's not as straightforward as maybe other generations or other moments in history yeah. imagine them. So we're having to kind of see like, okay, how, what's, what's the nuance here? How can we integrate the lessons from these struggles into our movement now and, and um, for me, that translates into, uh, for example, a critique of naturalizing the economy, both from those in power and also from the left, this tendency to see the economy as this machine that only yeah. like, moves in one direction. And that's where like, I very much gravitated towards modern monetary theory, because it's like, wait, wait a second, you know? Um, there are embedded legal 
social relations, norms, uh, as well as material relations, all kind of together uh, in, in one. And, uh, you know, for me, at least reading some feminist econo economists made this transition much more easier because that they're, they're making that same critique as well in a mm -hmm. lot of senses. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that answers a question, but that's kind of like my sense of, of, of where things were. It's like we had, uh, you know, multiple cascading crises. Yeah. Over some, and Trump certainly being one of those, you know, completely apart from MMT, there is this uh, window that's opened around the field of economics generally, right? There's more, what do they call it, heterodoxy? Yeah. <laughs> there's more heterodoxy going on than there's ever been. Although I, I don't know, I'm not quite sure how far this goes in the well-known name brand departments of economics but it must, it must be going on to some degree. And then around the field and sort of the more popular versions of all this, it certainly is going on. But you, you guys in the MMT thing are taking heavy fire from the econometricians, you know, the, the people that are quite sure that this is a science hmm. and that you should not be tinkering with their science, you know? Right. I mean, there's a real cultural thing going on here that's an earthquake for the it, profession. It's really fascinating. A lot of the heterodoxy is, well, it's been completely shut out of the vast majority of, of economics departments oh. and political science. I, I even think political science is in a worse state than even the field of <laughs> economics. I mean, it's, wow. it's awful out there. Yeah. But what, what's, hmm. what's interesting is that a lot of these heterodox ideas are in like business schools or really random departments. Like I, I randomly got a, a master's in leadership, organizational leadership, where I went to Mondragon. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, there were some things in that, in my experience there that I found to be very neoliberal, but there were other things that I found to be very empowering as well, very, very open to some heterodox perspectives. And so I think they, they've been pushed into these places that we wouldn't expect them. And because of this, um, it's been growing and strengthening popularity outside of, of the uh, realm of visibility of many people in, in economics and political science departments. So all of a sudden, here we are, we're organized, we're, we're making moves, we're coming out, and, and they, they uh, have been shocked by this. And I think this explains some of their very um, aggressive response to <clears throat> the, the very rapid growth of popularity of ideas like MMT. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, at business schools, they care about institutional design. Right. And institutional design is a creative question. And all these business reviews are filled up with, you know, how should we design businesses in a completely new way? Yeah. And then they started fetishizing innovation, which a lot of people on the left start, you know, rolling their eyes at. But sometimes, you know, you see this, you see sometimes on Twitter, um, people saying, oh, Silicon Valley reinvented the bus or they reinvented the public park or they reinvented this, that or the other. But what it's really happening is, you know, in this area that isn't in the, you know, that's about practical life, you know, creating literal businesses, um, they're, they're freed up from the academic orthodoxy to start thinking again, and then they walk themselves back in a circle towards some of these lefty ideas. Mm -hmm. And so it's I, I've I've noticed that as well. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's definitely a very fascinating uh, trend that's going on. What? Go ahead, Pete. Yeah. So we are um, Solidarity Hall and and Dorothy's place, and so we uh, care about some of the religious aspects to this. Um, and it's interesting that I, I think one of the most underappreciated, fascinating things about AOC is that the day she won the primary, the day after she won the primary, she was published in America Magazine talking about her Catholicism. Oh, yeah. And Mondragon has this connection to, uh, you know, it was founded by a priest. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting, uh, you know, that a lot of these ideas are coming out of Latin America, you know. Pope Francis encyclicals sometimes look like things that AOC is saying. So I'd love to hear if there's any uh, Catholic angle to the work that you're doing or that you've noticed among others in the work that you're doing. It's a fascinating question. I, I was, believe it or not, raised an atheist. Huh. And, and I was raised from like this very new atheist perspective. <laughs> and, and some of this also has like the historical materialism and the very 
what I would consider kind of vulgar Marxism in there as well. And it's, it's not until I get to college that I start to question all of that and see for myself that, you know, as, as a very young person in school and then in high school, I figured out, I, I thought to myself, well, if we can just like prove through empirical science that this is all not true and then this is true, then all of our political problems would be solved. <laughs> so that, that side of me starts to get questioned in college a lot. And I start to see how a lot of these other atheists were also just really reactionary and contributing to like white supremacist belief systems and very libertarian in the right wing kind of way. Uh, so I start to have like an identity crisis uh, <laughs> at, at, at one point it, it, through my college uh, experience. And I really start to like go back to these deep existential questions about the meaning of life and consciousness and, 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 and what does this mean for me as a person and uh, questions about higher powers and stuff like that. And so uh, my kind of spirituality starts to, to grow out of that. Um, I, I don't uh, necessarily belong to any one religious tradition, um, but I certainly engage with many of the same and appreciate uh, some of the similar philosophical, spiritual, ethical questions that something like Catholic social thought also engages in, or, li or liberation theology, mm -hmm. or the, the you know the the, the the tradition of the Black Church in the United States, and you know coming from Martin Luther King Jr. and whatnot and before, or the abolitionist movement, um, I start to really appreciate kind of the, the philosophical questions that, that those traditions are engaged in um, myself. Um, so many questions around uh, consciousness and the unconscious and kind of shadow work, the psychodynamics of these things and doing our shadow work. That was very, so, uh, you know, my master's was at the University of San Diego and they're also a Catholic institution. Hmm. Um, and, and so a lot of the work there was around um, building this practice or praxis of uh, people invested in their own emotional social development as their leaders, whether in political movements, social movements or, or organizations or, or what have you, um, very much focusing on the importance of doing this kind of inner work. Uh, and I value that. I think that's very important. That's something that I, that's um, key and, and, critical to my work and that's something that is also a big part of, of what AOC does and how she, she, she sees the world as well. I think we share that. Um, we've had several conversations about even before any of this happened about uh, how important it is to do that kind of work. Hmm. Cool, cool. You know, Andres, explain for us a little bit how you see the Green New Deal and MMT sort of energizing each other because I know this is one of the things you've written about elsewhere, and it's 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 been a kind of a blinding flash, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's critical because the enormity and the scope and the urgency of the climate emergency yeah. crisis requires us to really uh, have to have to think big and and just question a lot of orthodoxies about how we can uh, mobilize production and mobilize our resources. And, and I think that that's where MMT provides a lens that nobody else is really providing. Because I think, I think a lot of the other perspectives will end up in a dead end, where for some, the, the, the analysis that depends on finding money somewhere as some finite unit, whether picking it off from, from taxes itself or having, having to cut spending elsewhere, um, or having to incentivize private savings to spend all of these these different approaches just missed entirely missed the point that what matters is our available resources and how we can mobilize them to produce what we need. Um, and so when, when I, I like to talk about like lifting the veil of money from it being some finite thing to it being this social legal relationship mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, is foundational to what the state is and of course our struggle to have a more democratic or public control of the state uh, too so to to achieve the objectives of keeping the earth from warming over 1.5 you know or keeping it below two degrees 
I don't see any other way of achieving that than operating from a modern money perspective because it's just going to require mass, mass, massive public spending. Um, and then, you know, here we go into this question of who is going to um, organize and control this spending or, or reap the benefits of it if we depend on equity stakes or incentivizing yep. the better use of private savings yeah. or even public banks, which has become very popular on the left as well, which itself, by the nature of it still being a bank, uh, depends on lending. Mm-hmm. And we have to consider all these things like financial returns and can we, uh, can we get the returns that we're invested in? Uh, can the, can the, the shareholders or whoever has equity stakes get their returns back, right? It's a metric I think that we shouldn't get lost in and, and as opposed, of course, to uh, direct public spending where the, the, the evaluative analysis isn't on can, we, can, the, can the government make back its money but rather, you know, can we maintain an economy without uh, having inflationary problems? And can we hit our objectives, our environmental and our social objectives? Mm-hmm. Tell me, are you surprised at the degree of receptivity you're getting or more discouraged at the amount of negativity? Or is it sort of both? I think both. I think, I, I think I, I'm very optimistic and enthused at the way people who are for the first time getting involved in politics who are interested now in getting engaged mm. uh, a lot of people who don't have a background in you know wonky things understand some of these lessons very intuitively and uh, at the with at the same token i am surprised at the hostility through which other academics and uh, technocrats because you're messing with theology <laughs> right, the theology, uh, <laughs> and and even like you know certain certain gatekeepers on the left, yeah, who who kind of uh, fancy themselves as the the ones who are purveying the, the scripture or of whatever, mm-hmm. um, they don't like it either because you know I think people get very hesitant to opening up their ideas to include others as well. <clears throat> hmm. Is there also a tension? Uh, in the, the way this is has a kind of a top-down feel or could with our impulses to think more in kind of localist or anarchist, ter- anarchist terms? Yeah, uh, I think it's a, that's a great question. I mean, um, I'm, certainly started, uh, I'm certainly trying to overcome that binary yeah. and, and not think about things in terms of like this opposition between local organizing and big macro questions in the state. I think yeah. we have to do both. <clears throat> and uh, that's a task that I think is like the next level uh, on trying to figure out how do we actually institutionalize democratic power into these national agendas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and th- that, that does stress me out because it's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> I mean, it's it's to imagine, what's a micro MMT project? What's a test project? How could you do a small test project, right? I, I mean... It, it, for me, it's more about the, the goals that MMT is trying to achieve. How can we have projects for the goals yeah. uh, to, be, to be organized more democratically? And some of the conversations and work that I've been having with people like Michael Menzer, who's a professor at Brooklyn College, and he wrote a great book on participatory democracy, on, on how things like participatory budgeting and worker co-ops and citizens assemblies and these other institutions can be a part of the administration of modern money, modern money influence, green new deal spending. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. But that, that it stresses me out because that's, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's hard enough just to like get the green new deal to be talked about it on the agenda. Then I think about like this next thing, right, right, right. like, oh, I didn't break. Right. The most fascinating thing about the Green New Deal to me is that um, it has these, it's just a narrative coup because it, uh, and I mean coup in a good way. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's taking this giant word 
and we're infusing it with a lot of good meaning. You know, everyone's excited and organized. I, you know, I doubt everyone, you know, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I'm very jazzed about the Green New Deal, but I don't know all the details of it yet because I'm jazzed about the idea of mixing economic justice with climate, you know, avoiding climate catastrophe. And what it does is it's so much more exciting to organize around than the collection of miscellaneous environmental projects that need to be yeah, done. Yeah. And if each miscellaneous environment of the thousand miscellaneous <clears throat> environmental projects would not get something for, would not be enough for us to march in the streets. But if you bundle them together and give them this narrative like story that they're all part of this thing called the green new deal, then suddenly it becomes something we can all push at together. <clears throat> and um, I'm just so it's just, I'm just in awe in terms of political narrative and that, uh, that, that cause and getting it done. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's, that's amazing. I mean, we've had like before this, this green new deal uh, era, we, we've had 40, 50 years of environmental policy that has just been based on how to limit the degree to which all of our, the foundation of our economy is based on waste pollution and destroying the planet. But how do we like keep that to at least some kind of, how do we kind of regulate that? <laughs> and nobody's thought to ask themselves, well, maybe that's the problem to begin with. It wasn't even part of our imagination. So actually like a big part of, of where my dissertation is going is exactly on how disruptions in how we conceive of and speak about problems and solutions is, is one of the major uh, factors towards disrupting like hege hegemony and policy monopolies where nothing changes, nothing changes, nothing changes. And then like there's a shift in how we how, how the public understands the problem and the solution. And all of a sudden, like there's a cascade of new possibilities. Hmm. You know, it seems like uh, Andre, you're in a great position to give us some thoughts on speaking of uh, marching in the streets What's going on? Uh, let's let's take uh, Colombia, Chile. I think you've been down there recently. You said, "Yeah, I was I was in Colombia in August." Yeah, and uh, and of course, just because I'm Colombian, it's always been a part of my interest politically to think about what's going on in, in the region and in the country in particular. Yeah, uh, give us your read on any or any number of those situations and what they seem to be. Well, I I think that. Yeah, you know, Colombia is fascinating because if you think about where the legacy of Pinochet really is most powerful, it's in Colombia yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, 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 and, and maybe one could argue Brazil with Bolsonaro, but, but there has actually been a very specific trajectory of Pinochet-type uh, politics and fascism in Colombia um, that, is, that it had kind of has reached its... Uh, it's pinnacle and is uh, destabilized right now with with the, the the Paro Nacional, which is kind of a national strike that's gone on, uh, I believe, a week now. Um, during the 90s, in, in the very early 90s, Colombia had a constitutional re reform where they started to, to attempt to add some social democratic changes to the society, but all throughout the 90s came this reactionary counter-movement that privatized everything mm. and then concretized that movement in a you know, fascist strongman like Alvaro Uribe, who basically was able to convince the country to understand all of the problems of the drug war, of, of violence, of the instability, and the, the, the terrible rates of unemployment in the country. All of these things, he was able to create this perception that it was all the FARC's fault, mm. uh, that they were the, the terrorism. And of course, this leads into the, the U.S. rhetoric of the war on terror is all kind of used to focus that uh, the, the public's attention on that. And then he really kind of um, is able to grab onto power. Um, and very slowly in Colombia, things started to leak about the human rights abuses that this, this regime was actually responsible for. So, you know, something that's not often known in, in U.S. circles is, for example, these things called falsos positivos, which was a time where the, the Colombian military uh, was kidnapping 
civilians, poor civilians, even sometimes disabled people, murdering them and then dressing them up as FARC members to get kills mm -hmm. uh, counted for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they were caught, and this came out, and this is like a huge scandal. But um, but you know, it, 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 there's been some there's been some difficulty with getting this to go anywhere and actually prosecuting people. Uh, but this is a real fact that actually happened. So you know, there there is this history in Colombia of uh, state terror and uh, right wing paramilitary terror, which anybody who who takes the time to actually study why there is a FARC and, or there was a FARC and why there are these movements happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's just this story of uh, oligarchic warlords controlling the land in Colombia. And so this is kind of a topic I think is, is very relevant to all of Latin America, which is, yeah. um, you know, who controls the land and how this is kind of, I think, aligned with uh, the, the neoliberal development agenda of these mining companies, these, uh, you know, extraction, the extraction economy that goes into Latin America and is export, helping export all these raw materials and crude oil for, for the benefit of the global north. And that's kind of the situation that, that, that we're in. Um, but, uh, but this is, this, what's going, what's been going on the last week is very historic for Colombia. Uh, people, people are ready for, for something. People are finally seeing the, the extreme corruption and, um, and extreme violence of the Colombian state. So I think that it's possible that we may see a new wave of left political mobilizing in Latin America. And the question I think is, can we do it better? Can we learn from the lessons of the early 20th century um, to not repeat some of the mistakes that, that I think were made? Um, and, you know, for, from my experience, there's this question of, the work that must be done to decolonize our movements uh, as, as, uh, as members of the global South. Mm -hmm. um, so I think like the popularity of like the feminist movement in Argentina that is now spreading to the rest of Latin America and it becoming more and more present in countries like Colombia is very important. The leadership of indigenous movements who are leading social movements is, is very, very important. Um, I think those things are key to stopping controlling or providing alternatives to the tendencies that lead to corruption uh, when people take power in Latin America. I think this is something that's, that's quite common um, in, in just politics in general in, in Latin America. And of course it, it just stems from, from this history of colonization and, and obviously the U S doesn't make any of this any easier with their foreign policy. That's, that's, that's an obvious yep. thing. So. As a final question, uh, you're, you have your ear to the ground to various parts of the movement. Um, and I'd love for you to share something that you think, you know, our listeners might not have heard of yet, but that is giving you, giving you hope that we should be turned on to and is going to be a big thing soon. Is there a politician or a campaign or a idea or book coming out or anything that um, we should know about? I mean, I guess uh, maybe a couple of things. I think that we're going to start being surprised by the progressive energy that's going to start coming out of the Southwest. Um, I think that that's where the key is to really moving this country in the direction that we want. A lot of, you know, historically liberals and, and the Democratic Party has put a lot of attention on the coastal regions and whatnot, but it's the demographic shifts <clears throat> and concentrating predominantly in the Southwest that are going to provide a stronghold um, to, uh, to build the kind of movements that, that we need. So that's one thing I think we should be uh, looking out for. Um, I think, uh, I mean, in terms of books, uh, during summer 20, I think June 2020, we have uh, Stephanie Kelton's books coming out. I think that's going to, with all the work that we've been doing over the last two years or so, I think it's, it's going to culminate in a pretty cool way once that book comes out. Um, I think we haven't seen the extent of the jobs guarantee power in, in, in what that can mobilize and organize. I think that's just barely getting started as well. And it's been a little under the radar. <clears throat> so a movement for for full employment and a jobs guarantee, I think, is is has not reached its potential yet. 
Um, I, I think of uh, Reverend Delman Coates, who is uh, the founder director of the organization Our Money. And um, he is a very important influential figure in, in the uh, black church tradition. Hmm. And um, he is integrating the movement for liberation that goes all the way back to the abolitionist movement through the civil rights movement with MMT <clears throat> and with the movement for uh, public control of spending. Oh. Wow. And wow. it's really powerful stuff. Wow. So cool. Cool. that's really cool. I think <laughs> that people like Sarah Nelson are really reviving the labor movement. And um, in that's the air traffic controllers. Yes, yes. the president of the uh, flight attendants association. Oh yeah, flight attendants. Sorry, yes. confused yes. with another moment in labor history. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, so yeah, so so Sarah, she is doing some really really amazing work. She's and great. It's, isn't she? it's so intersectional too because you know when you listen to to the kind of labor organizing she's doing, I mean there are issues around gender and sexual mm-hmm. harassment. There, there are issues mm-hmm. around. Uh, you know, workers' rights. She's talking to coal miners about their their rights to their pensions mm-hmm. and doing this work of convincing the public and going to places that people usually don't want to go because they think it's just conservatives. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and working with people, meeting people where they're at and trying to uh, propose this vision that we're not going to, the Green New Deal isn't going to leave anybody behind. Our, our whole vision is to t- transition people into a new way of life that improves their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the work that she's doing is really powerful. And then ultimately how many of us are being able to work with one another and learn from one another in ways that are exponentially more growing more quickly and more effectively. Mm-hmm. So very cool. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Andres, good stuff. Um, we're going to have to keep up with this uh, very closely because it's all happening uh, in a hurry here. It's, it's amazing. So I will look forward to connecting with you again. And uh, Pete, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And Andres, keep up the good fight. Thank you for coming on Dorothy's Place. Thank you all. It's been a real pleasure. That was great. Be well. All right. Take care. Onward. Onward.